0: season, everyone. Uh, mine are in full blast, so if you can tell I'm a little nasal, that's, that's why. Um, as we are kind of beginning uh, to wrap up this series, there's a few more weeks left of talking about communion and the cross as we're in this season of Eastertide, post-Easter, and between now and, Resur- and, and Pentecost Sunday. Um, we, we, we wanted to be able to take different looks at what is the meaning behind Jesus' death. Why do we take communion? Um, and why do we commune as a community? Um, and there's a, there there was a a story that I heard recently. A, a group of forefronters, We went to a conference here in the city to end fascism. Cute little picture of us uh, all gathered together. And while we were there, uh, there was a particular session where a woman named Nelba Marquez Green uh, spoke uh, in a conversation. And honestly, she doesn't have any like letters behind her name. She's not notable. Um, Most people may not even know who she is, but a lot of the other voices were. If I name-dropped a lot of other names of people who were at this conference, but she was the one that made the biggest impression on me. Her words stuck with me the deepest. She is a mother of two precious little children. However, one of those children, Anna Grace, when she was six years old, her life was brutally taken at the Sandy Hook Newtown shooting along 19 other children on December 4th, 2012. Even as I say those words... Just like when I say the words 9-11, I get the goosebumps down my spine, down my back, down my arms, because of the reality of how unfortunate and how unnecessary these sort of deaths are. Nelba shared that after, after her child was brutally taken from her, Anna, that immediately her first exposure to the media, they asked her and all the other parents, as they always do when these shootings happen, two questions. Ready for these two questions? Have you forgiven the shooter yet, or are you going to forgive the shooter? And number two, how are you going to turn this tragedy into a triumph? Literally, on the breath, on the heels of losing her child. These are the two questions the media asks right away. (laughs) From strangers in the mail, she would receive little blonde-haired angels with the name Anna, the name of her child, written on them. Little did they know, actually they did know, but I guess they weren't thinking about it, that Anna nor her mom, if you can see the picture of the family, neither of them are white, nor does their child have blonde hair. But apparently all angels have blonde hair and blue eyes. This actually only added insult to injury and hurt because this child, this gift that they got in the mail, often didn't even reflect the child that they knew. It reflected someone else's vision of what they thought the child could be. Some Christians even told Anna as they wrote letters to her, that this happened because we removed God from the classroom. Yet, when it happens in churches or in Christian schools, no one would ever think to say that. These sort of undertones and these pleasantries, but not so pleasantries, really often just cause more harm and more pain. And, And people often would try to share and say things to her to make her feel better or to make her not be so sad. I know when my grandmother miscarried her very first child, they said to her, well, God knows how much you love children, and he just has set aside one in heaven for you. The things that people say, because they think, oh, that, that will make you feel better. That will make everything okay, because they don't know how else to sit with the pain and the suffering and the sadness. They don't know how to sit with the grief. They just want to sweep it under the rug, just like the media. Are you going to forgive are you going to get past this? Are you going to take this sad story and turn it into something good? Instead of just sitting with, how are you going to get through the next few days? How are you going to get through the next few years? How can we support you? How have people supported you? Maybe those would be better questions. Then how are you going to get past this? I don't know if anyone ever does, and Elba says, get past this pain and this suffering. We want people to often move past pain and suffering because in our American culture, quite frankly, we just do not know how to sit with pain and suffering. I mean, think about it. When somebody dies in our families, in our American culture, very much so, it's like, how quickly can we get them in the ground? And how quickly can you be back to work on Monday? I can't tell you how many times I've done funerals for people who we have a funeral on the weekend or maybe even in the middle of the week, and the next day after the funeral, they are back at work. Hardly any time, there's very few workplaces that have policies and procedures or provisions set up for people to be able to take off bereavement or grieving time, to just regroup and reground themselves. Instead, it's pull yourself back up by your bootstraps, get back out there, and move forward. We just don't have it built into our American culture. Nelba says this, she says, In the fight against gun violence, we need two teams. One, for all the change that needs to happen, and another, for the immediate long-term comfort and support of the survivors. Sometimes those are the same teens, but very often they're not. You see, Nelba shared this because she began to realize that what she was, which the messages that she had been told about how to deal with her grief and her pain was to channel it into advocacy, channel it into change. That's what she should do. And if she did that, that would make her feel better. And she said she remembered one day she was getting ready to go meet with legislators like she had done most days after the death of her child, Anna. And as she was getting everything ready, her son looked up at her and said, where are you going? She said, I'm going to meet with people who can make a difference to make sure what happened to Anna never happens again. And her little son just said, I just thought you could play today. She said, no, I have to go and do this. So she rushed off and she said she didn't even get out of her driveway before she realized, no, I don't have to go and do this. I need to go back in and be with my son. So she called those who she was going to meet with the legislators and said, I'm not going to make it today. Someone else is going to have to go and meet with them. And I think what she said in that quote is really meaningful because it's sometimes it's those of us who aren't the survivors that are supposed to do this work, they're supposed to advocate for this change, so that those who have survived, those who are suffering, those who are grieving, those who are dealing with the pain, can take space to do what they need to do and to be with their child that's left behind. Or to be with their pain and their suffering and not have to work through and push down their pain and their suffering so they can advocate for themselves. We don't often have this in our American culture built in, but I would say that we need it. I would say that we need it. On this Mother's Day, I want us to pause and I want us to take a lesson from a mother who found some wisdom and decided to impart it to us. Here she is speaking at this conference on the other side of over a decade after losing her child, and she is still in some ways making space for people to know a better way to deal with this grief and this pain. Because she learned a better way to deal with her grief and her pain. I think we see someone else modeled in scripture that does this really well, about sitting with people's pain and sitting with people's suffering and not trying to brush it by or move it past or offer a pleasantry. Guess who? Drum roll, please. Uh, Jesus. (laughs) Right, it's always the go-to answer. Jesus. Jesus did a really great job at this in the story of John, chapter 20. Uh, And I would love us to to pick up in this story. This is after Jesus has died. He's been in the tomb for three days. And Mary arrives at the tomb to grieve his death. She's come three days later to still just sit with the pain and the suffering of having lost this man, but also this divine figure, whom she had loved and entrusted, who had extended loving, and compassion and care to her when others had just cast her aside. And she's there to grieve the death that she did not expect or see coming. And as she arrives to the tomb, it says in verse 11, Mary was standing outside of the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stood and she looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus was lying. Dear woman, why are you crying, the angel asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied. I don't know where they put him. Verse 14, she turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus. But she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying, Jesus asked her. What are you, what are you looking for? She thought he was a gardener. Sir, she said, if, if you've taken him from me and you put him somewhere, will you, will you, will you go and find him and I'll, and I'll get him? Mary, Jesus said, Mary. she turned to him and cried out, Teacher. You see, Mary is grieving the loss of Jesus. Just a few days later, she was eyewitness to his brutal death. While most of the disciples, all but one, are hiding in an upper room, she has a front row seat at the death of Jesus Christ. She's not hiding. She's alongside Mother Mary, another Mary, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we believe to be John. She watched his brutal death. She watched him carry a cross through the town. She watched the nails pierce through his hands. She watched him take his last breath on that cross. She stood by him to the very end. And even as he breathed his last and others went away, she committed to helping with the others. Women who showed up. And they took his body off of the cross. And another man comes. Who Jesus had had once had a conversation with. And another man shows up. Named Zacchaeus. Who many of you may know. Who offers up his tomb. And says you can put Jesus in my tomb. This was for my family. But put Jesus in there. And the women. They go and they prepare the body of Jesus. And they close the tomb. And they think it is finished. He's gone. Because of unimaginable. Unnecessary violence. He's gone. And I didn't think anybody could take his life. But he's gone. And they're sitting with the grief, and she's sitting with the pain. And and three days of this, of realizing he's truly gone. And on the third day, she goes back to prepare the body with some spices as it decomposes, as it was tradition within, within Judaism. And as she looks into the tomb, he's not there. He's not there. She thinks immediately, well, clearly someone must have stolen the body. That's the logical thing to go to next, right? Somebody stole the body. Of course they did. That's what's happening here. Where did it go? How awful. How awful. A woman who lost, Nelba, who lost her daughter, Anna, talked about how her daughter's body was torn to bits, and to be able to not have the body to grieve with, there was a great pain, a great pain, not realizing the last time she looked at her daughter that that would be the last time her daughter looked like that, and then here's Mary, she just wants this body to grieve over one more time before she wraps it in cloth and spices, and finally says goodbye on the third day and closes the tomb. For in Judaism, it was believed that it wasn't until the third day that the soul had fully, finally departed. And amidst all of this grief and pain, her eyes filled with tears, she doesn't recognize the risen Christ. I don't know why she doesn't recognize the risen Christ standing there before her. Maybe it's because her eyes are so filled with tears. Have you ever cried so hard? You just can't even see what's in front of you. Maybe that's why, I don't know, maybe, maybe the risen Christ's new form of creation, his body, maybe it looks so different than it once did before, maybe it wasn't quite as she remembered it anymore, but whatever reason, she doesn't recognize his face. But the funny thing is, and the beautiful thing is, is Jesus isn't concerned with like giving her all the right answers or correcting her about his identity. or he doesn't, he doesn't go into this whole like sermonette about, like, well, how do you not recognize me? And I'm the risen Christ, and this is a defining moment. And let me explain to you all these prophecies of old. And, and there's no reason to cry. What are you doing? Pull yourself together. He doesn't do any of this. He doesn't go into a parable to try to help confuse her and explain to her a little bit more about this whole thing. He doesn't say, like, I tried to prepare you for this, I tried to explain, I I, I tried to give you some warning signs, or I'm God, how could you ever think that anyone could ever fully, really kill me here? He doesn't try to solve her sadness, he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he asks her two questions. Why are you crying? Why are you crying? And I've always heard that as, why are you crying? It's like, why are you crying, girl? Put yourself together. What are you doing? but I don't think that's actually what he's asking. I don't think that's why he's at what he's asking because, because of the second question he asks her. I don't think that's, that's what is going on here. Why are you crying, he asks her, and who are you looking for? I think he's sitting with her in her pain. He's wanting her to talk about what's going on. He wants her to name what, what is going on inside of her, what she's feeling. He's not interested in just making it all better because he probably could say some things to make it better, but instead he's like, whatever I say isn't going to make it better because you still saw me crucified. You still went through that traumatizing experience. You still put my body in this tomb. So no matter what I say to you now, it doesn't change the fact that you've still gone through some pain. You've still gone through great trauma and suffering. Who are you looking for? Tell me. Tell me about your pain. You don't know me. You don't recognize me. Who, who is it that you're looking for? Tell me about what's going on for you right now. It's not, his question is not, will you forgive my crucifiers? His question is not, now, how are you going to turn this story, Mary, into tragedy, into triumph? How are you going to take this gospel to the whole world now and tell them about how I've, it's not where he's at. There may be a time and a place where these conversations are ahead, but right now, Jesus is concerned with one thing, and that is tending to Mary's sadness tending to her grief, sitting with her pain. Dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Stan Mitchell, uh, a well-known pastor and preacher who founded a church in Nashville, uh, a prolific preacher and one of my most respected uh, thought-provoking individuals of the day, uh, he says this when thinking about the story of Mary. He says, Mary's initial experience of the resurrected Christ was not a revelation to be believed, but an important piece of or an important piece of history to be recorded, or a divine message to be proclaimed. Her experience was neither theological nor doctrinal. It was personal and healing. The newly risen Christ, his first act was a lovingly human response to his friend's suffering, tending to Mary's sorrow as a caring stranger before leading her to believe in him as the risen Christ. He could have Gone into a whole preaching sermon. He could have tried to convince her that her pain was illegitimate because now he's resurrected and it's fine, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he sits with her pain. He names her suffering. And then what I love most about this, it says, right? She thought he was the gardener and she said, Sir, if you've taken him away, bring him back, give him, give him to me. And then as soon as Jesus says this, Mary, the Bible says she recognized him. She knew his voice. She recognized it. She had heard that inflection before. Mary. I don't know, maybe, maybe she remembered that voice when, he, when Jesus showed up not too long prior to raise Lazarus from the dead. He came late and Lazarus was dead and Mary was just beside herself. And maybe she recognizes that voice of empathy. Mary. Mary. Maybe it was when Jesus was sitting in the living room And Martha's in the kitchen, and Mary's in, like, Mary is, like, in here visiting with Jesus, and she's, and Mary's like, she is just always busy. She's always doing something. She can't just sit and be. And maybe Jesus was like, Mary, I got this. It's okay. I made Martha. I know. I know she's a busybody. I'll take care of this. Mary. Whatever it was, as soon as as her voice or her name out of his mouth came, she knew. I don't know about you, but I know that when, my, when I hear the name Joshua, I think of my mother. Uh, my mom's, Joshua James, get over here right now. And, and if anyone says Joshua, I I'm immediately think I'm in trouble. Because that's the only time my mother ever used that name for me, Joshua James. And it would just come up in me. Oh, okay, i, I got to straighten my spine up, whatever I'm doing. i got to stop it in that moment because I'm about to get it. And I could just, I know that voice, I know that name, and then I know when my mother also has the voice of affection towards me, and she calls me Jay. Jay. Listen, Jay, no one else calls me that. Jay, and I know when my mother speaks, and I know that voice. And in this moment, I think that Mary, she knew that voice. And while she maybe didn't recognize him clearly, in that moment, it couldn't have been any more clear. And she draws near to Jesus, and in that moment, I believe that he makes space for her pain and for her suffering. We don't know, we don't know, but as soon as her, she heard her name, Mary, she knew it was Jesus. The great comforter, counselor, teacher, spirit we long to embrace. You offer hope when our hearts are hopelessly lost our way. Oh, you've hopelessly lost our way. Mary has lost her way. She doesn't know what's next. The grief is just too blurring to her vision forward. And in that moment, she meets the great comforter, counselor, and she proclaims, teacher, teacher. And she draws an ear, and I believe there's a shift for her. There's a lesson for us to learn here that I think that uh, Jesus offers to us, and that's that we can't always offer all of the solutions. We can't always make everything right and everything better. Life is hard. Life hurts. Life is difficult. And Jesus offers us the reminder that God does not just suffer for us, as many of us have been taught, but instead God suffers with us. And this is a paradigm shift in this worldview at the time. That people would believe that God causes suffering and God causes pain. And Why do bad things happen? It's all, I must have done something. God must be punishing me. This is a per- pervasive worldview of the time and it's still a view held today. And instead, Jesus comes and he takes this whole paradigm and he says, listen, while you believe that God causes suffering, I want to tell you, no, no, no. I'm a God that suffers with you. I'm a God that suffers with you and walks alongside of you. This weekend, uh, us and I have family visiting uh, you can see them on the second row over there, peeking over now. Uh, and my sister-in-law, she posts pictures all the time of our two little three-year-old nieces who are just precious, and we adore them. And you see this little Band-Aid on Nora's nose? Uh, they love Band-Aids, and uh, Ashley loves to give them Band-Aids whenever they're in pain or suffering. Now, it doesn't, doesn't have to be a gaping wound. doesn't have to be a cut. doesn't have to be nothing visible to the visible eye, but if they get a Band-Aid and they put it on them, all of a sudden, everything's okay. All of a sudden, there's a comfort. It's like, I'm going to be fine. And sometimes, even just emotional pain, throw on a Band-Aid. It's okay. Now I'm fine. Guess what? The Band-Aids aren't special. It's not the Band-Aid. What's special about it, what's special about it is that somebody is saying, I see your pain. I see your suffering, and I'm going to tend to it. I acknowledge it's there. I acknowledge it hurts. And we're going to be present in the midst of it. I don't know about you, but I need some people who know how to put some Band-Aids on. I need some people in my life who know how to tend to my pain and to my suffering, the hard things and the easy things. My husband's very good at this. Uh, Quite frankly, I'm very bad at this. Uh, When I come to my husband and want to talk about what's going on in my life or what I'm going through, he can just sit with me in my pain and in my suffering. He doesn't ever try to fix it. He can just sit and listen, that's really hard. I hate that for you. Do you want me to hold you? He's so good about just sitting with me in my my pain, in my complaining, in my annoyance, in my sadness, in my anger. He just sits with me. Now, when he comes to me, I do the opposite. I'm like, okay, how are we going to solve this? How are we going to take your emotional state and we're going to take it to a better level? How are we going to solve this problem at work? How are we going to make all these things go away and make everything happy and good and wonderful again? Because guess what? I'm a fixer. But one of the things we recently started doing that's been really helpful so that I can learn to sit with pain and suffering and not feel like I have to always fix it and make it better, because I don't like sitting with hard emotions, is that we'll ask each other now, do you need support or do you need solution? Do you need a support or do you need a solution? And that allows us to be able to ask each other and to speak to each other, what do we need in this moment? Because there are times, right, when a solution is necessary. But I think a solution is necessary every single time, And it's not. Sometimes there isn't a solution also. Sometimes all you can offer is support. And I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that there are people in our, hopefully in all of our lives and hoping that we can be a people who are more willing to show up with Band-Aids. To know that we we can't make all this right again. But we can tend to the body as Mary tended to the body. And we can tend to the soul as Jesus tended to the soul and we can show up and we can offer support and so often I find that mothers have a hard time because there's not enough time to sit with the pain and the suffering and the hard things and it's all about finding the solutions and getting past and moving beyond this and being strong for everyone else but I want to say this to you moms this morning because I watch you and I watch you try to be strong and try to move past the grief and the sadness And try to move past the hard things. And I want to just say this morning to you, I want to give you the permission, just sit with it. And it's okay. And if you need someone to sit with you, this pastor is trying. I will try to sit with you in it. And I will try to grieve with you in the pain and in the hard times because you can't be strong for everyone at all times and all the places. It's okay to sit with the hard feelings. It's okay to sit with the pain. Mary, who shut up to grieve and tend to Jesus' body, she was met with incredible comfort from the great comforter. And I believe today that we need to be a community that can learn to sit with people and embody the great comforter. And so for those of you this Mother's Day who may have lost your mother, I want to wish you this. I want to wish you comfort. For those of you who may have wished your relationship with your mothers were better, I want to wish you comfort. For those of you in this space today who don't know your mother or were hurt or harmed by your mother, I want to wish you comfort. Know that Jesus sits with you in your emotions and comforts you in your grief, and this community wants to sit with you in your tears and your hardness too. And for those of you who have had a fantastic relationship with your mother and who have seen your relationship improve or you're working on your relationship, I want you to know we rejoice with you and this incredible gift. And I also want to sit at your feet and learn what it's like to be a good mother and a good father and a good parent so that I can embody that for my children and I need you to learn that from. And may you impart that wisdom to each person you come across. May you be motherly and loving. May you impart the spirit of comfort by embodying love in your flesh and by shifting and changing things from generation to generation. And for those of you who are grateful to be parents but are scared and confused at failing through motherhood, guess what? Every mother has ever told me, you're going to fail. It's going to be hard. You're going to fall down. There's going to be times when you feel like you just can't do anything right. But guess what? We thank God for the spirit of comfort amidst failure. That God will walk alongside us as we face the challenge of lovingly shaping our children into the image of God. Humility is so much better for a parent than pride and the unwillingness to admit that you're not doing anything wrong. Sometimes it's just a matter of acknowledging to you and to your child, I missed the ball on this. Sometimes that's what I have to do with my husband, and he's not a child. I have to just admit that. I have to admit I did this wrong, and that's the most healing thing that we can do. So church, as we wrap up this Mother's Day sermon, but also consider the communion and the cross and those who met Jesus at the cross and those whom Jesus met at the tomb, I want us to consider the ways in which we as a community can meet people both at the cross and at the tomb. To meet people who are both in the midst of suffering and those who are trying to move through suffering and find a way forward. May we be a community that learns to sit with the hard emotions and not just try to brush things past and offer pleasantries and solutions. But instead, may we be a community that can offer support and sit with people in their pain. Amen Amen. and amen. We're gonna move into a time of communion now. I invite the the worship team to come forward. You'll see communion is on either side here. You'll be served communion this morning. It's a gluten-free uh, cracker as well as uh, uh, Juice in solidarity with those who are in recovery As well as so our children can participate In communion with us You'll receive the elements as you come forward And we ask that you just hold those communions elements For now uh, And we'll take them all together as in, in one voice in, in a little bit uh, As we come to the table today uh, And as we are in this series On communion on the cross I want us to, to stop and remember Something that's really beautiful about the table Sometimes coming forward like this can be a little impersonal. Communion for most of, uh, of ch- Christian history uh, was gathering around a table and having a meal together and providing support and love to one another. And so as you take communion today, if you notice anyone near you that you're familiar with or you know or you're comfortable with, comfortable with, maybe ask them, "Is there any way that I can support you?" Because this table, this act, this moment when we come forward to take communion. It's beautiful and it's sacred and it's personal, but it's also communal. And so as you come to the table today, may you take these elements and may you consider the ways in which God's calling you to also suffer alongside others as Christ suffers alongside us. Amen? Amen. I invite you to come forward and take the elements. All are welcome at the table. No one is ever denied in this church. <laughs>